Uh, This morning I'm going to read from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it would not be taken away from her. Can I, can I, can I move closer? I can. Thank you. Thank you. So if you won't come to me, I will come to you. I used to say to my students at Moore College, if you can't feel my spit, you're too far away. And on a warm day, it was, very, it was quite refreshing, actually. So, uh, thank you. It's lovely to be with you here in the, the, the beautiful Adelaide Hills. So it's been, yes, it's been terrific. Um, as, we, as we follow through Luke's Gospel... As I mentioned, I worked in Pakistan. Um, my wife was born and raised there. She, her parents were missionaries. They spent nearly 40 years uh, working in Pakistan doing evangelism. I had five kids all born and raised there. Uh, of the five, four later returned to Pakistan to work there themselves. Um, and we were there too. And when we were there in the 90s, uh, three of our five brothers were working there. We, uh, and one is a man called Joel. Joel, I guess, is now 60, probably, he's probably spent 50 years of his life in that part of the world. And Joel was working there. And while he was there, he was asked one time uh, to go to Afghanistan for six weeks on a short-term mission trip. Uh, the mission had brought out an American vet just to do some work, and kind of just to plot out whether they, they might begin a work, if they could, in central Afghanistan. And Joel, who speaks five or six of the languages, went there really as the translator. It was risky, we knew that. Uh, before he went, he went to his parents, although he was now, what, 30-ish, to ask their permission to go, because it, it, it could be dangerous. It was a war going on uh, against the Russians, with the Mujah, what's called the Mujahideen, I guess, the, the predecessors of the Taliban. Anyway, he went, and uh, on the last day of their being in the country, they're buying gifts to take back home, a jeep tore into the town they're in, armed men jumped out and kidnapped Joel and this older man, who was a retired vet. And to cut the story short, uh, Joel spent six months as a hostage in central Afghanistan, and we didn't know whether he's alive or dead. In fact, Sarah said recently that she had to... Give up Joel as dead. She just couldn't bear to live with him, just, just not knowing. She just kind of, well, we've probably lost him. Anyway, uh, the mission would hold meetings uh, with hostage experts to work out what to do because they had a policy of not paying a ransom. And at one meeting in America, uh, the family sent another brother, Phil, to represent the family at the meeting. 
They brought in hostage experts to discuss what to do. And it began, the guy who began the meeting said, uh, friends, our first priority is how do we get Joel out of Afghanistan? At which point Phil spoke up and said, excuse me, um, but that wouldn't be Joel's priority. I'm sorry. I think Joel's priority would be How can I glorify God in this situation? God has put me here. He's sovereign. How can I be used by him to show the light of Christ and maybe draw someone to Christ? Now, I don't think Phil was being overly pious. I just think he's right. You read Paul's letters, most written from prison. Paul never says, please guys, pray, get me out of here. There are always prayers like, the gospel's progressing. I mean, just like like this prayer, how can I glorify God in prison? That's just just the right prayer, I think, and the right priority. And I think Phil got it right because he and the family, they had the mind of Christ. May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day. By his power and love controlling all I do and say. I think when you have the mind of Christ, you know how to pray. You know what your priorities are. So I just think it was right. That they, they were filled. You know, Paul says, may the, may the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Well, I think Christ's word dwelt in them richly. And they knew how to live. So I want to kick off this morning with that thought. As we read this, this very well in that lovely story of these, these two sisters. Uh, and the question of having, I think, Jesus' word dwell in us richly. Just, just some background uh, to, we're look, walking through Luke's gospel. I think you did a series on Luke a couple of years ago. But at Luke 9, around 51, 52, we're told by Luke that Jesus set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. He just kind of, the alarm goes off in his life. Okay, Jesus, time to go, really, to the cross. He sets off on a 10-chapter journey to Jerusalem with the disciples following him. It's a 10-chapter it's a journey. And it's a journey on two levels. It is a physical journey along uh, dusty country roads with twists and turns and pebbles in the shoes. It's a dusty journey. But the journey is a metaphor for the journey of discipleship. Because on the way, he, he gives teaching about the way, about how to live. In fact, you may know, you'll know from Acts the first name given to Christians was the way. We are the people of the journey. We are disciples. We follow him along the way. So along the way, he gives teaching. And the teaching he gives is pretty pretty stark. He meets rejection. And he says to us, really, on the way to the cross, be single-minded, be focused, be resolute. He says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm, I'm homeless. I was talking to Cameron the other night about pastors. It just so discourages me when I hear about a pastor who's asked to go somewhere to serve. And the big thing is, well, how big's the house? How many carports? What was the schools like for my kids? Like, they're not unimportant, but ha- hang on, pastor. <laughs> 
The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Let me go and bury my father. You let the dead bury their own dead. Come follow me. Don't put your hand to the plough and turn back. Don't be like Lot's wife. It's pretty, it's pretty in your face kind of teaching. Uh, before our, our chapter today, he sends out the 72 on a mission. Then the story of the Good Samaritan. And now this lovely story as he comes to Bethany, just a few k's from Jerusalem. And a house there of a family he knows very well, close friends of Jesus. Three in the family at least. Mary Martha and a brother called Lazarus. We know from John's Gospel, who our Lord raised from the dead. He's not here in this story. Maybe he's away or maybe he's not very important for the story. He's not mentioned. But he regularly, our Lord, stayed in Bethany with this family. It's far enough away from the city of Jerusalem to give him some privacy. But close enough, in an hour's walk, he's in the city. He stays there with them regularly. They're good friends. And I guess a fairly big house. Because he's there with the disciples. So I I gather a few rooms, quite large. And the women that day have their work cut out for them. There's our Lord. There's his friends and some others. There's a lot to be done to get ready for the evening meal. In that culture, today and back then, being hospitable was very, very important. So a big day of that. I don't think there are too many subways or tie takeaways in Bethany and the first century, not many Domino's pizzas for takeaway. So their work is cut out for them. These two sisters, Mary and Martha. Before we go on, it's, it's a very important little passage and quite radical. Quite radical. As I said, I, I, I taught at a Bible college in Pakistan. Just a small one. We had a student there, a Muslim convert called Pervez, married. They had their first child, and it was a girl, which was disappointing. Then they had a second child, and that too was a girl. That was very disappointing in that Muslim culture. So they simply didn't feed her. As he trained to be a pastor... They didn't feed her. And we tried with the school nurse to feed the child. And at nine months, she weighed what she weighed at birth pretty well. And she died, really, of starvation. We buried her. Within half an hour, he was playing volleyball with his classmates. You'd think he'd lost a rabbit. And they went to him and said, I'm sorry. He said, oh, it is the will of God, he said, dismissively. That's, that's the world of Pakistan, the, the Muslim world. I had a daughter at that time, nine months old, Lauren. I would have been inconsolable had she died. In fact, at her birth, uh, we gave a party back in, in Pakistan. When you receive a blessing, you don't receive gifts, you give gifts. So we gave a, a party for all the students in the college and the staff. We had them around for tea and cakes. And the dean of students, a godly man, said to me, oh, but Mike... We wouldn't do this for a girl, just for a boy. That's the world of Pakistan. That's the world of first century Palestine in the Roman Empire. That's the world our story takes place in. 
were a Jew, thank God he wasn't born a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. Where a woman's testimony was worth half that of a man's. That's the world of Jesus. And against that background, Luke's gospel is incredibly radical. Luke, more than any other gospel, gives prominence to women again and again and again. He rarely mentions a man without a woman. So at the beginning of the gospel, there's two godly saints, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Then, of course, the godly Mary. Then the Lord goes at at eight days of age to to the temple to be dedicated. There we meet the godly Simeon and the godly Anna. We meet a widow of Nain whose child is raised from the dead. We go to the house of a Pharisee called Simon. A woman comes in and washes our Lord's feet with her hair because she's forgiven much and Simon the man stands by and scorns and sneers. The woman gets it, the man doesn't. And Joanna and Susanna and many others. Then we have a woman who puts in two copper coins more than all the rest. And on the Lord's resurrection, who are the first witnesses? The women. Again and again and again in Luke's gospel, you read of godly women. I just think, it's, you can say this, I think the Lord Jesus began a radical women's liberation movement. Which was, now we, that doesn't... We read the gospel, it doesn't hit us because we have a woman prime minister and premiers and business folk and bishops. It's, we, we miss that. But against the context of the gospel, it's radical. And now this morning, the model of discipleship is, again, a woman. Let's meet them, these two remarkable ladies. Let's just briefly, let's let meet Martha. I think she's the big sister. Uh, she's mentioned first. And I think our first impression of her is very positive. She welcomes our Lord into her home. In the previous section, our Lord sends out the disciples on a mission. He says, when you go to a house, if they receive you, that is, if they give you food and shelter, that shows their faith. In receiving you, they receive me. In receiving me, they receive God. Their being hospitable is a mark of their receiving me. So here's a godly woman who receives into her home Jesus. She cares for him and gives him food and shelter. So she stands out, I think, as a genuine godly disciple. She receives the Lord not just into her house, but into her heart. That's Martha, an impressive woman. Then the sister Mary. Again, we're impressed by Mary. And I think, just to look ahead, I think our Lord portrays her as the model of discipleship. She knows he's Lord. She sits at his feet and listens to his word. She sits at his feet. That's what disciples do. In Acts 22, verse 3, Paul is giving his testimony to the Jews how he was a godly Jew, how as a young man he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the great rabbi. 
He sat at his feet. He, he, was, he was a disciple of the great Jewish teacher. You sat at the master's feet. So a moment ago, I stood up to teach. And you sit. Back then, as a rabbi, you sat down to teach. And when you finished, then you stood up. But you sat down to teach. And at your feet sat the disciples, the followers. A Lord sat down. At his feet is Mary, a disciple. And our Lord says, in a sense, behold my disciple. Well, there are the two women, two godly women. Both respond to our Lord, I think, in an exemplary way. They've welcomed him into their home as an expression of receiving him into their lives. One is serving the guests, probably many guests, the other sitting and listening. One is a doer, one is a sitter. Now, let's pretend we don't know what happens next. Now, of course we do, but let's pretend we haven't had the reading and this is all brand new to you. All you see are two women, a doer and a sitter. One you know will receive from Jesus a commendation, the other a mild rebuke. But who will hear what? You do know in that culture then and now that being hospitable is very, very important. In fact, not to be that is a slap in the face. Back in chapter 7, I mentioned the story of the woman who washed our Lord's feet with her hair. Our Lord rebuked Simon. He says, Simon, I came here. You gave me no water to wash my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You publicly humiliated me. No hospitality. None. In that culture, not to feed a guest, and a guest of our Lord's stature will be slapped in the face. I'm staying with Cameron and Karen. If I turned up there and they said, oh, okay, Mike, you by yourself for four days? Good luck. The shops are that way. I think, oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> I feel, I feel love, warmed and loved. Let's put a smile on my face this week. Not that. Uh, but that, far from it. Quite to the contrary. Uh, but it's, it's, when I worked in Pakistan, I was just thinking one time at a conference in a place called Multan. We flew to the airport and got a taxi and said to the taxi driver, oh, we're going here to this conference centre. Oh, I, I, I live just around the corner, he said. Come to my place for a cup of tea. Happens all the time in Adelaide with a taxi driver, doesn't it? Come to my place for a cup of tea. It's a regular thing, not in Melbourne, but Adelaide, yes. We went, we went for a cup of tea. He said, stay for lunch. This is a taxi driver. We stayed for lunch. He said, stay for dinner. I can't go to a conference. That, that's the world of being hospitable. It's very important. And doing is important. In the previous parable of the Good Samaritan, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do this and you will live. Go and do likewise. Verse 37 is go and do. What do he say in verse 38? Sit and don't do. 
He just said, go and do. And do what's important. Being hospitable. So surely he'll commend the doer. But our Lord always surprises us. Let me, let me, Lord, go and bury my father. To which you'd say, and I'd say, well, of course you can, he's your father. You know the commandments, honour your father and mother. Of course. Why ask my permission to bury your father? Of course you can. Don't. Let the dead bury their own dead. There's, there's a man lying by the road, battered and bruised. Three men come along. A priest, a Levite, a foreigner, a half-caste. Who'll care for him? Well, it's obvious who'll care for him. The ones who know the law, of course. Of course. Of course. There are two women. One, doing. One showing our love for Jesus Practically, one being hospitable, one just sitting on her bottom, doing nothing but listening. Of course, he'll commend that one. Let's look at our Lord's surprising answer. Luke turns our attention back to Martha and we see now all is not well with Martha. Because in contrast to Mary, she's been distracted with much serving or literally much ministry. She's doing Christian service. She is practically showing her love for Jesus. But the work has begun to overwhelm her and she's become distracted. Like you're driving down the road and your mobile phone slips off the seat onto the floor And you bend down to pick it up and you get distracted. Or you're driving down and you see someone you know in a coffee shop and you look and you get distracted. Well, she's got distracted. You see, the issue with Martha is not she's too busy per se. Not that she's a workaholic or a perfectionist. She's just let all her good work distract her and cause her to be anxious She's become concerned with things that are, are important, but aren't the main thing. Our Lord warns against this again and again. He'll say later on, don't be anxious about, what, about your life, about what you'll eat, what you'll wear, what you make for dinner tonight, how you prepare five talks for the church camp, how you'll care for your ageing parents. How you fit in time to to go to the gym or repair the house or keep the business going. Don't let those things so overwhelm you. You get distracted and you don't do the important thing. Because if you're not careful, when you bend down to pick up your phone, you swerve into the wrong lane and it can be disastrous. It can be. So be careful, he says. And that's Martha. She's become so overwhelmed by her good things, she's been distracted. And I think she's probably exasperated. Can't you kind of picture her? There's her sister. There's a mountain of work to be done. I can just kind of picture, I can hear Martha. Oh, 
There's so much to do. And the body language and the hints and the clues, just trying to get the word out. Sis, come on, give me a hand. So finally she does, well, I'll I'll have a little word to Jesus. He'll, He'll sort her out. So she has a little word to Jesus. And he sorts it out. He doesn't say, Martha, what you're doing is a waste of time. Not at all. It's good. It's just not the first thing. Then he gives us a governing principle of the Christian life. There is need of only one thing for the disciple to sit and listen to me. One thing in life is necessary. It's like uh, Acts 6 in the early church. They used to give a, a free food to all the widows. But one group were being were missing out and being neglected. So they take the problem to the apostles. Guys, sort it out. Here are widows being neglected. And they say, that's important, but it's not the main thing. Our job is prayer and the word of God. We'll appoint deacons. I'm glad that Cameron came here last night to help set up. That's his job, to put out the chairs. Seriously, that's his job. But it's not his main job. His main job is to pray for you. His main job is to sit, as he did this morning, at Jesus' feet and listen to his word and faithfully bring to you the word of God. So please don't put such pressure on him that you distract him from his main job. One thing is needful. That's the story. Let's think about it for us as busy people in the Adelaide Hills. Just two things I want to say. The first is don't misunderstand Jesus. Uh, Micah, the prophet, writes to an unbelieving Israel that are wicked and rebellious and unrighteous. And Micah says this, With what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Do I want your offerings? Your sacrifices? He's shown you what is good. And what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice. To love mercy. To walk humbly with God. Now hang on. But Micah, God wants burnt offerings. He commands them. Yes, he does. Of course he does back then. But he's saying, the main thing is justice, mercy, humility. He's not saying don't do the rest. Just keep the main thing the main thing. Yes, the other things are important. Put out the chairs, do the music. They're they're all very important. But the main thing is this, he's saying. Don't take your eye off the main thing. The main thing is to sit and listen, to to be a disciple. 
So don't let your worries, your cares, anxieties distract you from the main thing. Disciples are first and foremost people of the word of Jesus. So well done, Cameron, in having five talks this weekend. Really? I know it's a lot. I'll try to make them interesting and keep you awake and all that, but that's right. I had a bit of a grumpy old man moment on Thursday at the network dinner. And I, and I said, uh, meet day. I just said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a disillusioned camp speaker. Can I say that to you? You're looking at a disillusioned camp speaker. A grumpy, disillusioned camp speaker. I've done, I, I don't do many now. I just get too grumpy. We have two talks in the morning, free time in the afternoon, and some inane games night or quiz night. <laughs> I, I, they're, okay, they're good. They're, but, but I'm not going to travel to Adelaide for two morning talks and hang around all day for the... This is great. This is great. That you've given, you're giving time when you could just be walking the hills and practicing your skit and sweating up on your trivia. You've given given time for this. That's right. That's right on Sunday that the center of your gathering is the sermon. That's right. To hear God speak. I go to old church in Melbourne. We have four Bible readings every week. I just that's, I, I love that. And they're well read. I, it's, just, it's, it's just right, I think. So I think he's saying here, not all we do as we gather is equally important. I've just written a book with a guy called Rob Smith on singing in church. I'm, here's another grumpy old man moment. <laughs> I'm getting bad. Uh, I'm just disillusioned with singing in the churches. I just get depressed. But today you encourage me. It's just so, people, people don't sing. Do you notice that? They stand there with their, their mouths shut. And all you hear is, is the mic'd singers. And we just stand there. And I think, guys, this, this is singing. This is important, okay? It's very important to, to encourage each other and praise God. Let's sing. There's my challenge this weekend. Some great songs. Guys, make a grumpy old man happy this weekend. <laughs> Let's sing, but it's important, but not as important. It's worth writing a book about, but not as important as this. To sit and listen to Jesus. So I want to say this, guys, girls. I just want to commend to you the great Christian tradition of the daily quiet time. Now, maybe not every day. Maybe not sit and listen. Maybe in the, in the era of Walkman, you can, you can walk and listen. You can ride your bike and listen. You can jog and listen. You can sit in the train and listen. You can ride the car and listen. You can do all... You can, but just... And just a few minutes. But just do it. What I do like about church camps and weekends away is it gives us a chance just to, just to stop for a day and take stock and reevaluate. Have, have I got 
in life my priorities right. I have four kids who, by God's grace, love Jesus. A year or so ago, two live in America, my Sarah emailed all, my wife emailed all four and asked them this question. Guys, how are you going with your quiet times? Can I say their replies were fairly sheepish? <laughs> Can I take a leaf out of my wife's book? My dear friends, how are you going with your quiet times? Oh, Mike, really, yes, I agree with you in principle, but really, if you knew my life, oh, I'm so busy. I work from seven to seven. I'm building a business. I've got kids at school. I've got, got ballet. We've got the, the, the football. We've got the drama. Or the kid, on the run all the time. The golf, I've got, I've got to keep fit. Got the, the, the Fitbit, 10,000 steps, takes a while. I, you know, I've got the, the Boeing to do, the lawn. I've got the, the aging parents. I'm, I'm, and I'm not a reader. I'm not a reader. <laughs> Are you a listener? You know, I, you, you can get distracted by things that are important and miss the main thing. Can't you? Remember those early days as a Christian? I remember you couldn't get enough of the Bible. Just, it, just all the time. It was, it was, you loved to read it. There's a book written some years ago called Stepping Out in Faith. The testimonies of people, all Catholics who come to faith. In every one... The Bible was central. Let me just, just read a few comments. This is uh, Alex Morbelli, whose husband died of cancer at 44. She was invited to a ladies' Bible study. She said, I grew to love those Tuesday morning Bible studies. In my Bible study, I continued to hear God speak. In the Gospels, I discovered a Jesus I never knew before. Tony Coffey writes, but here in this evangelical church, the exposure to the living word of God grabbed my heart. I felt myself being drawn to the message. Eddie Piani writes, God began opening my mind to the real Jesus and the real God. The more God taught me from his word, the Bible, the more I wanted to learn. I was beginning to understand the idea of grace. Angelo Porcu wrote, I began to read my Bible and it led to a change in my lifestyle. Alex Ponoma wrote, probably the most important factor in this sudden enlightenment was that I read the Bible for the first time in my life. And Mark Gilbert wrote, Seeing what God was like in black and white and knowing clearly what he wanted from me was wonderful. I went to Mass because I felt I had to. I went to Bible study because I loved it. Remember those days? They can still be our days. I've just written one thing I do in my spare time. So I write little commentaries. Uh, here's one on Colossians 5 and one on Matthew. Um, just 
a page of thoughts with some application and some questions. Take you five minutes. Ten or fifteen if you're reflective. I'd love to give them to you for free. I can give you a website. You can get ten copies for free. Now, or get something else. But if the daily quiet time has become a thing of the distant past or very infrequent, can I say again, listen to Jesus? I'm not decrying all that you do for the family, the work, the church. Not for a moment. But one thing in life is needful to sit at my feet and listen back in 1953 at the coronation of the Queen the Archbishop of Canterbury gave her a Bible and said this our gracious Queen to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and gospel of God As the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. The most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the living oracles of of God. The most valuable thing this world affords daily in our hands. May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say we will think his thoughts do things that please him as we sit at his feet and listen beloved one thing in life is needful let me pray for us Our Father, thank you so much that as the Father, you love to speak to your children. You're not the distant Father, the emotionally removed Father, but the loving, speaking Father. And Lord, forgive us for taking your presence for granted. Uh, Thank you for your word and deepen our love for you and for your word. And grant us all this day the resolve to be disciples of Jesus, to sit at his feet, to look full into his wonderful face and listen and learn from him. We pray this for his glory and for our good. Amen.